0: Welcome, everyone, to Dr. John Bedker's Leadership Podcast, the podcast focused on leadership. The episode will begin shortly. Thank you so much for tuning in. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Dr. John Bedker Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, John Bedker. Well, today we're going to have the third in a series on Collectivism. We're going to address government today, in particular, government leaders. So important in this time, this turbulent time in our world, both civil and political unrest around our globe. So, a very relevant and timely topic today. Collectivism is central to government. And this centralization is a global experience. Collectivism is at the core of world democracies. Let me begin by looking at the U.S. experience and its core. As they say, let's begin at the beginning. Let's look at our founding documents. How do they begin? We, the people. Yeah, we, the people. Not I or me or mine. Rather, the collective. We, the people. And what are these documents about? Another foundational quote from our founding documents. To form a more perfect union. Well, there's the union word literally in the text of one of our founding documents. To form a more perfect union. Of course, we early on had to fight a civil war for our democracy between the Union and the Confederacy. As we know, it was Union soldiers and American democracy that prevailed. So, let's start with that understanding, that absolute foundation, that collectivism is key and critical for the success of democracy and, as we know, has been critical to the success and enduring nature of the united states of america i'm going to start with uh, an article i'm going to read you some pieces from it a little bit out of the box but i do think sometimes for leaders that's important to think about how government leaders our topic today might be arrived at who they are try to understand their being something about their identity and do this based upon scholarship. So I'm gonna begin by an article, a recent article, August 21st, 2023. It's by Adam Grant. He's an organizational psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School at Penn. And he's written this piece for the New York Times called Elections Are Bad for Democracy. Well, that right there is out of the box and certainly from a leadership point of view might not be something that um, we would all jump on board with in agreement, but he raises some points. So I'm gonna read some snippets from this article Um, and I think it's it's a good beginning to this third in our series on collectivism. Here's Adam Grant. On the eve of the first debate of the 2024 presidential race, trust in government is rivaling historic lows. Officials have been working hard to safeguard elections and assure citizens of their integrity. But if we want public office to have integrity, we might be better off eliminating elections all together. So here we go. This is a little bit out of the box, as I said. If you think that sounds anti-democratic, one of my initial thoughts I'll share with you, well, think again, says Adam Grant. The ancient Greeks invented democracy, and in Athens, many government officials were selected through, big word here, sortition. Sortition, a random lottery from a pool of candidates. Sortition. In the United States, we already use a version of a lottery to select jurors. What if we did the same with mayors, with governors, legislators, justices? What if we did that for the president? People expect leaders chosen at random to be less effective than those picked systematically, as we do currently. But in multiple experiments led by another psychologist, Alexander Haslam, the opposite held true. Groups actually made smarter decisions when leaders were chosen at random than when they were elected by a group or chosen chosen based on leadership skill. Why were randomly chosen leaders more effective? They led more democratically. Systematically selected leaders can undermine group goals. So says Dr. Haslam. He suggests they have a tendency to, quote, assert their personal superiority, end quote. When you're anointed by the group, it can quickly go to your head. I'm the chosen one. Now, those of you reading our current press in the United States might find a, a ring to that of something like you may have heard. When you know you're picked at random, You don't experience enough power to be corrupted by it. Instead, you feel a heightened sense of responsibility. I did nothing to earn this, so I need to make sure I represent the group well. And in one of the Haslam experiments, when a leader was picked at random, members were more likely to stand by the group's decisions. Well, that's interesting because you think the representatives that we elect here in the United States are to represent us, the our, the we, that collective. Do they represent our interests, our desires, our intentions, our expectations of them? And I think most of us know that oftentimes that is not true. All right, a little more from Adam Grant. In a study of elections worldwide, candidates who were rated by experts as having high psychopathy scores actually did better at the ballot box. In the United States, presidents assessed as having psychopathic and narcissistic tendencies were more persuasive with the public than their peers. A common explanation is that they're masters of fearless dominance and superficial charm. And we mistake their confidence for competence. Sadly, it starts early at a young age for many of these people. Well, Adam Grant in this article talks about the most dangerous traits in a leader are what he calls the dark triad of personality traits. Narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. What these traits share is a willingness to exploit others for personal gain. People with dark triad traits tend to be more politically ambitious. They're attracted to authority for its own sake. So let's think about that in our current world, in our current context, and what's going on with us today. Um, This very week, uh, as I record this, there will be a Republican debate. One, Person eligible to be at the debate will not be present. Others will be there making their case. But let's think about this dark triad of personality traits. Things that Adam Grant says draw people to this line of work. Narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. Grant goes on to state, If the dark triad wins an election, we all lose. When psychologists rated the first 42 American presidents, the narcissists were more likely to take reckless risks, to make unethical decisions, and to get impeached. Add a dash of Machiavellianism and a pinch of psychopathy, and you get autocrats like Putin, Erdogan, Orban, or Duarte. Eliminating voting and candidates with these dark triad traits, Adam Grant argues, would be less likely than they are now to rise to the top. Of course, there's also a risk that this sort of lottery approach would deprive us of the chance to select a leader with distinctive leadership skills. So as lucky as Americans have been to have Lincoln as an example at the helm, it's more important to limit our exposure to bad character than to roll the dice in the hopes of finding another best president. Besides, Grant argues in this article, If Lincoln were alive now, it's hard to imagine he'd even put his hat in the ring. In a world filled with divisiveness and derision, evidence shows that members of Congress are increasingly rewarded for incivility. And they know it. Grant argues this lottery would give a fair shot to people who aren't tall enough or male enough to win. It would also open the door to people who aren't connected or wealthy enough to run. Our broken campaign finance system lets the rich and the powerful buy their way into races while preventing people without money or influence from getting on the ballot. Research suggests on average, people who grow up in low income families tend to be more effective leaders and less likely to cheat. They're less prone to narcissism and entitlement. And then, of course, there's the issue of money, economics. Switching to sortition would save a lot of money. The 2020 elections alone cost upward of 14 billion U.S. dollars. And if there's no campaign, there are no special interests offering to help pay for it. Finally, no voting also means no boundaries to gerrymander, no electoral college to dispute. Instead of questioning whether millions of ballots were counted accurately, we could watch the lottery live like we do with teams getting their lottery picks in the NBA draft. All right. So a little bit out of the box, Uh, again, I think from a leadership perspective, that at times is important. He does make points. Um, What happens if leaders, though, are at the helm? What happens if they, in fact, make decisions, decisions which they later regret? Well, how do you go back? How How can you or can you at all? unravel. Well, here's a piece on that very topic from the United Kingdom. It's called regret, as in British regret. Most of you know, seven years ago, a majority of British voters opted to remove their country from the European Union. Now, many of these Britons are having a second thought or regret as the new statesman has called it. The United Kingdom's exit from the EU is estimated to have shaved 4% off the United Kingdom's gross domestic product. Why? Because companies moved across the channel to the European Union bloc nation's to access the common market and imports from the EU. It's caused headaches at border crossings, Ireland, France, Gibraltar, elsewhere. It's made Scottish independence more likely. If Britons could vote on rejoining Europe, 55% say they would cast ballots to return to the bloc, according to YouGov. There's a growing understanding in Britain that the country's vote to quit the EU, a decisive moment in the international rise of reactionary populism, was a grave error. So wrote New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg. Even the former leader of the UK Independence Party, Nigel Farage, who helped engineer Brexit, Believes it is a failure, Politico has reported. We mismanaged this totally, he said. It's no wonder that pundits now predict that the governing Conservative Party that promoted and presided over Brexit will likely lose control of Parliament when the country holds its next general election in January of 2025. That's according to National Public Radio. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the U.S. leaders, leadership from our foundation, a little bit about Adam Grant, his thoughts on maybe how we might want to rethink this are the best and the brightest, those that are going to serve us, that are going to be most responsive to collectivism, are those the ones we're arriving at or are we arriving at this triad of character flaws that often cause these people to seek public office and to exercise their own agenda rather than the agenda of those that elected them. So we need to have some thoughts here as leaders. This issue of government leadership is so key and so critical. This idea of saying it's not my thing, boy, please don't do that. It is all of our things. So let me give a few thoughts. What I'm going to call just the top five, five things to think about uh, going forward. Thoughts on leaders in government. But of course, I think they're going to be able to have application to us all. One, represent the people. Boy, isn't that at the heart of collectivism, of the we, the union, us. Represent the people. Represent your constituents if you're an elected official. Understand where they are. Understand what they are seeking. Often, they either do not or choose not. But what is their job? Their job is to represent the people. We don't have to look far in the United States. Certainly in the case of reproductive rights, we've seen a number of initiatives from legislators, local, state, federal, who when taken to the ballot box are being told, that what they were seeking is absolutely not what the people want. We've seen that loud and clear in state after state regarding reproductive rights. Gun control, similarly. Do we really want this gun culture to be pervasive, to have open carry, permitless carry, very limited gun safety well when we poll and we ask the people the we, the us, the are we find absolutely we want these things but elected representatives are not being responsive in their representation of the people immigration reform same thing I don't mean to dwell on these, but but all three of these jump off the page, as do so many others. But I do this just to highlight that oftentimes our elected representatives don't represent the people. So first and foremost on my thoughts on government leaders, represent the people. Uh, immigration reform, uh, oh my goodness, we are a nation of immigrants. If we... Don't think that we need to address the issue of immigration, that we need to stifle it, stop it, control it. We are a nation of immigrants. How can we be anti-immigrant? It just flies in the face of our very foundation as a nation. Okay, so item one, represent the people. Item two. We have a relationship for leaders and in leadership, and that is this nexus between authority and responsibility. Now, I'm talking about government leadership and certainly government leaders here today, but obviously we can all take this for our own areas. Authority must be commensurate with responsibility and one's responsibility must be commensurate with their authority. So in the case of an elected official, they have great authority. They're elected to represent the people. And what is their responsibility then? Also very great. To do it. To represent the people. So this Leadership relationship between authority and responsibility, one connected to the other and vice versa, must, not can, not could, not should, must be practiced by government leaders. They have great authority. With that comes great responsibility. Third, another leadership axiom, I think very important for government leaders And that is for leadership to be effective, it must be consistent. Now, these in-scale words, you know, are are really not, there's a caution, right? Try to avoid the in-scale because we know there's variation. There's variation in everything. But in the case of leadership, some of these axioms are in-scale because that's what optimizes your effectiveness, your capacity to be the best leader you can be, and in this case, it does apply. For leadership to be effective, it must be consistent. So, as we often say in the United States, if you sit on one side of the aisle or the other, you're only for that side and don't listen. If one side says, yes, you feel you have a need, a responsibility to say no. And what we should look at is the issue, at the policy, at the bill, at the legislation, and say, do my constituents want this? Will it benefit them? Will it add to the common good? We need to be consistent rather than political polarized functionaries, okay? For leadership to be effective, it must be consistent. Number four, traits of leaders. Again, application to each and every one of us, honor, character, integrity. These are hallmarks, not just for all leaders, but let's focus specifically on government leaders. Think about that. Honor, character, integrity. Tell the truth. My constituents want fill in the blank. Do the majority of the constituents in your area of purview, do they want Reproductive rights, do they? I think the answer we know largely is yes. Certainly the vast majority is yes. There are some that don't. Understand that. But if you're representing the people, we need to say, what is the truth? My constituents want fill in the blank with that issue. If that is what the majority want, that is your responsibility to have the honor, the character and the integrity to say the truth. Okay, last, I'm gonna go to the very foundation. I think it's key, I think it's critical. Uh, I say it over and over and over because it bears saying over and over and over. Never forget the basics, the fundamental calling of leadership. Do the right thing. And that's what I'm going to leave you with, folks. Do the right thing. Government leaders must do the right thing. Don't vote for someone because of party or affiliation or polarity, your own Whatever you listen to on your social media, do it because it's the right thing. If if you're a person who believes that mass shootings are a good thing, I think you have a problem. I think you need to rethink that. If you're a person who thinks that taking away the rights of a fellow citizen is a good thing, I think you need to rethink that. Leadership is about doing the right thing, caring for one another, recognizing that the collective, the we, the us, the our, that majority, the will of the people is what each government leader should seek to do and seek to serve. All right, folks, that's the third in our series on collectivism. I think it's hugely important. Um, If you enjoyed it, please share it with your friends. I think this is a critical time, a critical juncture, and this idea of the role, responsibility of government leaders to do the right thing could not be more important. Take care. We'll talk soon. Thank you for tuning in to Dr. John Bedker's Leadership Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please tell your friends and, of course, please follow our podcast and subscribe. Thank you again for tuning in.